Today's sermon text is Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Last week we considered the duty of children to their parents, and today we consider the duty of parents to their children. And the overall context, as I've indicated, is subjection. So children are to subject themselves to their parents by obeying and honoring them, and parents are to subject themselves to God's law for parenting, treating their children according to the law of love and not according to fleshly instincts or passions. So the first thing when we think about this passage, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, is, is this just for fathers or does this also include mothers? Uh, we'll consider what it means to provoke your children uh, to anger and what it means to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, but first that question, what about mothers? Is Paul talking exclusively to the fathers here? I don't think so, for two reasons. First, because both fathers and mothers bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and we see that in Proverbs. Proverbs 1, verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Proverbs 6.20 My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Proverbs 31 is a passage that we're always thinking of in terms, in terms of what is the Proverbs 31 woman. But what's interesting is, is that the chapter starts out as the words of King Lemuel's mother to himself. So this is what his mother taught him. The words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. What, O my son, and what, O son of my womb, and what, O son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, or your way is to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed, and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Think of Timothy. It would seem that Timothy was taught the Christian faith by his mother and perhaps his grandmother as well. In 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Then you compare that with 2 Timothy 3.14-15, and he says there, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy's father was a Greek and did not circumcise him, so he's apparently not a believer. It's most likely that Timothy knew the sacred writings, the scriptures then, from childhood through his mother. The second reason that I think Paul, uh, Paul's command in Ephesians 6, 4, do not provoke your children to wrath, implies mothers as well, is that mothers are just as capable as fathers as provoking their children to wrath and exasperating them. And I'm sure we've all seen that happen. So what would apply to fathers would also apply to mothers. I think the reason that Paul addresses fathers in the verse here is probably for the same reason that men are addressed in the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. 
Um, that is not said there as though women are free to covet or that wives never covet their husbands and therefore don't need to be addressed there. It's just simply the scriptural habit and default of addressing men as heads of households. I think that's what Paul is doing here as well. So what are the ways that parents might provoke their children to anger or wrath? Well, the ways are legion, and unfortunately I've done almost every one of them. Um, by that I don't mean that uh, my children all hate my guts and uh, they don't respect me and are in complete rebellion against me. I mean that I have failed in every one of these categories at one point or another. Uh, these are common faults. They're not unusual. Most children have witnessed them and experienced these failings in their parents. So you need to understand that, children. Uh, there are no perfect parents. Uh, God is a perfect father. Uh, the rest of us, not so much. All children are in need of grace to forgive the sins of their parents that their parents have committed against them. And of course the same is true for parents forgiving the sins of their children, wives forgiving the sins of their husbands, husbands forgiving the sins of their wives, and masters forgiving the sins of servants, and servants forgiving the sins of masters. So let's consider some of the ways parents provoke their children. Number one, by abuse. Obviously, if you physically abuse your children, and I don't mean spankings, legitimate spankings, then you will provoke them to anger and wrath. They will hate you and do what they can to get away from you or what they can to get back at you. And the same is true of sexual abuse. But it's also true of verbal abuse. Many parents have a habit of insulting, mocking, or ridiculing their children, either to satisfy their bully complex, or to intimidate their children, or as a substitute for spanking. And this is a good way to provoke your children to anger. Making jokes about your children uh, in front of other people and everyone laughs at the expense of your child's reputations or feelings, that's a good way to make them resent you teasing that goes too far, and most teasing does, will make your children resent you. As we discussed in the sermon several weeks back on Ephesians 5.4, where it says, And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting. Uh, coarse jesting, as we discovered, is harsh bantering, usually masquerading as friendly ribbing. But however friendly it might be meant, it's usually not taken that way. You might think people are taking it well, but they might not actually be. And if you're doing this with your children, don't be surprised if they resent you for it. Teasing, if it is to be done at all, should be the mildest of things without any hint of subtle messaging. In other words, if you tease someone, there should be no question that you are joking, and there's no truth in the joke. And the person should not wonder if you're sending them a veiled message and criticizing them while pretending not to. So, if it's somebody who's overweight, you shouldn't be making fat jokes about them. The only person you can make a fat joke to is somebody who's skinny as a rail. 
Uh, if you do that sort of thing to your children, don't be surprised if they resent you. Don't be surprised if they learn the same art from you and they return the favor at some point. We can provoke our children by failing to discipline them. This is ironic, but just as children will be provoked to anger if you abuse them physically, sexually, or verbally, so they will also be provoked to anger if you fail to love them enough to discipline them. God has not made a suggestion to us that we use corporal discipline with our children. He has commanded it. Proverbs 23, 13-14 says, In the imperative mood, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. This is not an option we can casually dismiss. Many parents act as if the Bible uh, merely permits spanking, but in truth it commands it. And it addresses the worries of parents about permanently damaging their children by spanking them. He will not die. Proverbs 22.15 and 29.15 speak of the rewards of spanking or the benefits of it. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. 29.15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 13.24 connects corporal discipline with love, as does Hebrews 12.5-8. Proverbs 13.24, He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And Hebrews 12.5-8, And you have forgotten the exhortation that is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So seeing that discipline is associated with love, suppose that children instinctively and intuitively understand this. Suppose they know that if you don't discipline them, you must not really care about them. Suppose they can discern that our failure to discipline them is an indicator of neglect and that it is merely self-love on our part. That would provoke them to anger. They want you to love them. They want boundaries. They don't want to be left alone and just do whatever they want. They sound like they want that, but really they don't want that. There's an issue, there's a reason why children who get their own way bring shame to their mother. Obviously no child likes spankings, but why then aren't children grateful to their parents for not spanking them? Have you seen a mother in the store who obviously doesn't spank her child? Have you seen how her child runs over her, screams at her, and even hits her in the face? Have you seen how she counts to three, two, two and a half, two and three quarters, three, and nothing? 
and how effective that is. Have you seen how she threatens Tommy with timeouts or with not bringing him to the store again or reducing his candy allotment or something like that? Have you seen how she negotiates with him and bribes him to get him to stop throwing a fit? Yet it is clear that spanking is not one of the things in her arsenal and he knows it. And yet he is not grateful to her for not spanking him. We do not see him hugging her and talking to her and fawning over his mother and saying, Oh, Mommy, thank you so much for, for never spanking me. Thank you for just scolding me. Thank you for just arguing with me constantly. Thank you for bribing me. Uh, thank you for making deals with me and trying to negotiate with me. I so much appreciate that instead of you spanking me. No, we don't see that at all. On the contrary, it appears that he despises her. And the reason is because it is loving to discipline children with a rod, and it is hatred not to. And children are provoked to anger and wrath by parents who hate them. A third way that we can provoke our children to anger is by disciplining them in unrighteous anger. So just as it is true that you can provoke them by not spanking them, you can also provoke them by spanking them with unrighteous anger and severity. Now it's not about how hard you spank them, it's about the look on your face and the sound of your voice when you carry it out. If they perceive that you despise them and hold them in contempt, they will not quite catch that this spanking is an act of love. And just as it is true that a soft answer assuages wrath, it's also true that angry statements provoke more anger. A fourth way that we can provoke our children to anger is by neglect. By neglecting our children, by ignoring them, by failing to listen to them by showing no interest in their lives or what they're doing. Now, fathers tend to be more guilty of this than mothers. If your child comes up to you and asks you to read a story, you might be unable to do it right then. You might be busy. But are you always too busy? Is there never a time that you'll read to them or attend to them? Have your children given up asking? If your son brings you a picture that he drew on a piece of paper, do you look it over and interact with him? Or do you show no interest at all? He can tell if you have no interest. If you show little to no interest in your children, they will be provoked to anger. They will resent you. A fifth way that we can provoke our children to anger is by being too demanding. When nothing your child is good enough, or that, that your child does is good enough for you when you are liberal in your criticisms but conservative in your compliments, when you're such a perfectionist in your standards that they can never measure up, when you impose demands on them that they are not old enough or strong enough to bear up under, and then scold them for their failure. This may be what is implied in Colossians 3.21, the parallel verse to Ephesians 6.4, Fathers do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Children lose heart when they cannot please a parent because the parent is impossible to please. The sixth way that we can provoke our children to anger is when the answer is always no. Well, we know the problem of parents not being able to say no. That's a huge problem. 
But at the other end of the spectrum is parents who never say yes. Parents who are so controlling of their children that they don't let them do anything. Parents who are so worried about something that could go wrong or worried about safety issues that they don't let their children do much of anything that involves the slightest risk. That will provoke your children to anger and rebellion. It's also provoking to them when you have no good reason or explanation as to why they can't do something. Now that being said, children, you do need to obey your parents and not always insist on an explanation. You know, why, why, why? Getting an explanation for everything is not actually in the Bill of Rights. And there isn't always time to explain it to you before you just need to do it. Sometimes parents may not know how to explain it, but they, they have a good reason. They just don't know how to explain the good reason. But even so, parents should have reasons for their rules, and the reasons should be rational and sound. If they're not, we'll provoke our children to wrath. Seventh way is that when parents are hypocrites, when parents require a standard of conduct from their children that they do not adhere to themselves, when they expect their children to be polite even though they aren't, when they expect their children to have good manners even though they don't have good manners, when they expect their children to be respectful even though they're not respectful. And now keep in mind, children, that some rules apply to children that don't apply to adults. Children have bedtimes generally up to a certain age um, as they're set by their parents and there's a reason for those adults set their own bedtimes uh, they don't have the same bedtimes as children they might wish they did but they don't um, children may be forbidden from eating sweets before meals because they then don't want to finish their meals whereas adults have no issue with that and they can eat chocolate chip cookies right before their meal that's not hypocrisy, that's just they're able to handle that and you aren't as a child. It's part of being a child. But parents, when it is hypocrisy, when you're telling them to do things that you don't do yourself, uh, you will provoke your children to anger. They will not respect you. Uh, number eight, when parents quarrel with each other, parent, uh, children do not like to see their parents arguing and quarreling with each other in front of them. They don't want to hear that or see that. And they don't want to be recruited into the quarrel. They resent it when mom tries to recruit them to her side in her war against dad or vice versa. They don't want to hear you speak bad about their mother or about their father, even if they happen to agree with you on the particular issue at hand. Number nine, when children are allowed to quarrel with each other when parents abdicate their parenting and they refuse to judge and adjudicate quarrels that erupt between siblings, this can create resentment, particularly amongst children who are often on the short end of the stick of those quarrels. Now, parents do this. They abdicate for one usual reason. They're sick and tired of the quarrels, and they have other things to do besides being a full-time referee. It is unjust to automatically punish all the children involved without knowing the cause of the quarrel, and yet it can be exasperating trying to determine who is actually at fault. It's his fault. No, it's not it's her fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. So parents 
get tired of that sort of thing and they often just let the quarrel go and then it intensifies and children can resent this particularly those who are the victim of the quarrel uh, they can especially resent the lack of parental intervention the lack of there being a judge to call in and appropriately justly settle the matter think of it this way if you would resent it if your neighbor constantly took advantage of you encroached on your rights or on your property and then if you appealed to the civil magistrate the authorities they just ignored you or they told you to just work it out with your bully neighbor because they didn't want to be bothered by it or if the authorities simply sighed at you when you brought a complaint and they punished you along with the person who had already victimized you thereby you know deterring both of you victim and victimizer just covered in one fell swoop well if we don't like that our children don't either if our children's quarrel has progressed so far that they're throwing punches pulling hair biting and, and so forth usually we intervene then I hope because we see that it's gotten way out of hand but actually it gets out of hand much earlier than that at the verbal stage well, such things need intervention words are sharp like knives and wound just as much or worse than punches that old chant sticks and stones may break my bones but words can never hurt me that's a nice thought it uh, seems like a nice thing to be able to say to people who have actually hurt you with their words the problem is it's a total lie generally words hurt even worse than physical um, bruises God let us remember is a perfect father and we're not we're not perfect fathers we're not perfect mothers we're not perfect parents but we are to imitate him in the strength that he supplies um, think about all these examples that I've given uh, there's more that I could come up with I'm sure but can you imagine God doing any of these things no he doesn't he doesn't do those things he does not provoke his children to wrath the second part of Ephesians 6 4 is what we'll look at now bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord this is what we are to do as opposed to provoking them to wrath so what does it mean now the Greek word for discipline is paideia and according to the lexicons it means tutorage education training by implication disciplinary correction chastening chastisement instruction nurture the Greek word for instruction is nuthesia from which we get the word nuthetic and nuthetic counseling and it means warning or admonition uh, corporal discipline is included in this duty to raise up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord but we've already talked about that uh, verbal chastisement as well of sinful behavior that's included in this idea of raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord um, if bad behavior is not corrected it will become a calcified settled habit in our children David was a great king and a pretty bad father 
Uh, we see an example of this in 1 Kings 1, 5 through 6. It says, Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done so? And that was David. David did not cross his children. At least in numerous instances that we see. He didn't execute Amnon after Amnon raped his daughter. Um, so his son rapes his daughter and he doesn't do anything about it. Then Absalom takes revenge and David doesn't do anything about that. Uh, then when Adonijah tries to make himself king and prepare to take the throne, even though it's going to Solomon, not him, David doesn't do anything, doesn't say anything. And David continued to reap what he'd sown in these failures in correcting his, his sons. But let's just consider in this passage the education aspect. And note the wording. It is the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul's not talking about education in general. He's not talking about math and grammar and philosophy and history and all kinds of other subjects. He's not talking about what you get in a public school or college. He's talking about Christian education. The discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that is the job of parents primarily. Well, parents... You're to teach your children the scriptures. You should be teaching them the attributes of God and showing them who he is and what he is like as part of the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You should be teaching your children about the Trinity, about each person of the Trinity and what role each person plays in creation and redemption. You should point them to Christ as the only Savior and teach them about his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and rule. You should teach your children the gospel, above all, the good news. You should show them the way of salvation and point out false gospels that will damn those who subscribe to them. You should be teaching them what is what it means to be saved by grace. You should teach them God's commandments and what's required of them. You should teach them the meaning of life. Why are we here? What is our purpose? You should teach them how to have a God-honoring marriage and how to raise children. You should teach your children to be hard workers. You should prepare your sons to be husbands and fathers and your daughters to be wives and mothers. You should point out the lies of the devil and the temptations of the world. And all the while, you should be reminding them that hearing these things is not enough and that does not make them Christians. And being your children does not make them Christians. And attending a good church does not make them Christians. You should remind them that they must be born again, which is a work of the Holy Spirit. They need to know all that. And this is your responsibility. This is not something you can outsource to others. If you send your children to a Christian school, you're not off the hook. Even if that Christian school is theologically sound and reinforces all the right things. This is primarily your job. It is not enough to take your children to church and hope that the Sunday school teachers do the job for you, if your church even has Sunday school. Or uh, sending them to Awana and thinking that will get it done. Or, and here's a real laugher, hope that the youth group meetings will get her done. 
Even if by some miracle the youth group is focused on serious Christian discipleship and not the world's longest-running pizza buffet, complete with games and dating possibilities, it's still your responsibility as parents to train them up, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is a serious responsibility that requires effort and an investment of time. It doesn't happen by osmosis. At a minimum, it implies family worship. Family worship should not be an extra credit approach to raising your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. It should be the bare minimum of what you do. How can you expect to fulfill this command without a daily time in the Word with your children? You can't expect to pull this off by relying on Sunday, one day out of the week, to fulfill the objective. And now I'll get really controversial. I don't know how you can fulfill this objective apart from homeschooling. And, you know, I don't want to say that. I know there's no verse that says, Thou shalt homeschool. But there's also no verses commanding or even implying any kind of public school either. Let's face it, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about education uh, per se, you know, the education of children. But what it does say is in the New Testament, right here in Ephesians 6 4, raise them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6, 6-7 it says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. That implies a pretty thoroughgoing saturation. It's clearly referring to parents doing it to their children, not outsourcing it to some teacher elsewhere and I, I see no reason why we would look at the New Testament and and reduce that and minimize that and lighten that responsibility any and as far as the Bible is concerned there isn't much else about this this is what we have to work with so let me just offer a few disclaimers at the front about homeschooling. So I went to public, number one, I went to public school. So I'm not speaking about this in ignorance. I'm not just, you know, lobbing bombs over the fence at, at public school. And it's, you know, something I don't even know about. Um, I, I know all about it. And I also know it's only gotten worse since I graduated from high school a hundred years ago. And number two, I'm not condemning you if you went to public school. I would be condemning myself for one thing, um, but I'm not condemning you. Um, if you if you sent your children to public school either, this is not about condemnation at all. We're just simply looking at what does the scripture tell us we're supposed to do for our children. Number three, homeschooling is not a cure-all. Don't think that it is, and don't think I'm saying it is. It isn't. You can school at home and you can still fail to obey Ephesians 6.4 and I've seen it happen over and over again. I've seen people that I think really kind of put their trust in homeschooling and thought if they just get out of the public school system, that's good enough. And if it moderately Christianese, uh, you know, worked into the curriculum or something, that's, that's not enough. 
Uh, fourthly, homeschooling your children is no guarantee that your children will become Christians or turn out well. And I've seen situations, too many situations, where it didn't end well at all. And fifth, it should be acknowledged that some public school children become Christians. I praise God that they do. I'm glad for that. But Ephesians 6.4 is not talking about results. It's talking about duties. Parental duty. And what we're talking about here is this command in Ephesians 6.4, and it is a command, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I really have serious doubts that you can fulfill that objective as a parent when your kids are gone most of the day to school and when at some point they become involved in after-school sports or other activities, like I was as a kid, that keep them at school until 5 or 6 p.m. I had athletic practice after school, rushed home for supper, and rushed back for play practice. And then I was home at 10 o'clock in the evening. And even more so when the things that they're hearing at the school may well be undermining the Christian's truths you believe and have been trying to instill them, still in them on a part-time basis. You know, we only have a relatively short time with our children, and then the opportunity window's gone. Think of it this way. Imagine the Israelites outsourcing the education of their children to the Philistines, or first century Christians outsourcing it to the Romans. Why would they do such a thing? And then imagine them assuring themselves that at least their children are learning math well, and getting properly socialized so they can fit into the real world better. I know the challenges and the obstacles to homeschooling. Uh, they're, they're significant. Uh, number one, I know that we live in a country where public school has been the default setting. And I know that when it started, the Bible was read in school and there was prayer and the Ten Commandments were on the walls and were memorized and you know they're they're using the uh, the primers and so forth that, that have all kinds of biblical uh, illustrations and reference points but it's a far cry from that now and however much better it was then than it is now it was still outsourcing the responsibility to others Secondly, I know that many mothers do not feel qualified to home educate. But I think that the fear is based on ignorance of the incredible amount of helpful materials produced today. Uh, there's just so much out there that you can use. And there's people that know their subjects well and they communicate well and they've got you know, audio and video things and books they put out and just really good stuff. You don't have to be a an expert in all these subjects to teach it and you don't have to be a genius um, if it was I certainly couldn't participate in the schooling of my children um, and I think there's also unrealistic and perfectionistic standards that might be plaguing you as you think about homeschooling and fear trying to take that on um, you know God just he tells us to raise up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord he, he doesn't say your children need to be math geniuses, they need to be child prodigies, they need to be authors, they need to be professional musicians, they need to be 
experts in calculus and chemistry and all of these things and they need to be uh, you know basically uh, outperforming all the public school kids in every category it, it, that's actually unrealistic and there's nowhere that we're told that we have to do that and we have to produce geniuses um, and another thing that needs to be considered on this issue of I just can't do it part of that is because of a failure to discipline kids so if a mother cannot control her children and make them do things that they are supposed to do because she will not discipline and therefore they will not listen to her then she's going to rightly conclude that she cannot supervise their schooling at home but the solution to that is to repent of your failure to discipline them corporally and then uh, get about schooling them and uh, rather than using their uncontrollable behavior which is due to your failure to discipline them as an excuse for why you can't homeschool uh, thirdly I know that in most families the woman uh, the wife is working outside the home and they are relying on her income to help pay the bills huge and painful adjustments would have to be made for a mother to start homeschooling the children she'd have to quit her job and they would have to learn to live on much less income they might have to sell their home and move into a smaller one I'm not suggesting there won't be a cost but we're not supposed to believe in a cost-free Christianity we are supposed to embrace the cost of obedience even to the point of dying for Christ if we should die for him no questions asked then we ought also to be able to sell our house for him that house we're not going to live in very long and can't take with us fourthly I know that there are good teachers out there in the public schools I'm not denying that and I'm glad that there are may God's grace be poured out upon you if you are one of them you have a hard job to do and I pray for you that God would bless you but that's actually irrelevant to Ephesians 6 4 we're talking here about the duty of parents not whether or not there are some good teachers in the schools professing Christians who are public school teachers need to quit personalizing this and being so defensive this isn't about you unless of course you're a mother teaching in the schools when you have children under 18 that you are supposed to be raising in the discipline and admonition of the Lord yourself and in that case you should quit being a public school teacher and go home and teach your children fifthly I know that in many circles you're considered to be weird if you homeschool and to that I would reply some 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 homeschoolers are weird no doubt about it but so are some public schoolers I don't think homeschoolers have cornered the market on weirdness and you know when a public schooler is weird no one blames that on the method of schooling no one says oh well it figures there are public schoolers people only say that when it's a homeschooler well you know they're homeschooled and secondly when do we allow worldly people to hate God who hate God to define for us what is weird in the first place and says when do we adjust our plans on the basis of their opinions one thing that we all seem to agree on in conclusion here is that our country is quickly descending into madness and chaos and we also seem to agree generally across across the board and in, in Christian circles 
that we're not replacing ourselves very well in the church. Our children are ditching their Christian upbringing almost as soon as they get to college. It is not sticking. They're not becoming truly converted to the faith. Taking them to a good church on Sundays, if it is in fact good, and sending them to Awana into youth group is not holding back the flood of worldliness. They're playing by our rules to a point until they can get out of the house and then they drop the disguise altogether. And it's also not working to homeschool them and yet fail to raise them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. But what we're doing is not working. And we have to ask ourselves some hard questions. Something has to change here. We only have a short time with our children. And then they're out from under our discipline and instruction. If we screw it up, we can't go back in time and redo it. That's the sobering thing. We only get one opportunity here. The clock is ticking. Are we provoking them to wrath? The clock is ticking in our repentance. Are we bringing up our children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord in the time that we have for them? Or are we calling it that while doing something far less? than what is implied. The clock is ticking on that too. Well, may the Lord forgive us of our sins against our children according to his great mercies. And may he also give us grace to repent of our ways and start obeying Ephesians 6.4. Amen.